And welcome to another edition of VLGA Connect, where we talk all things governance with our resident governance specialist, Steve Cooper. Hi, Steve. Hi, Chris. How are things for you and the team you have around you at Civic Mind? <laughs> oh, our international operations, just finding ways to stay busy, Chris, because we've said before, there's always something happening. Thanks for that. Indeed. And what, and what, <laughs> what we thought we might do this week is just touch base on the various processes that are underway uh, in terms of engagement with the sector around the implementation of the new act. And there's, I think you were saying there were eight separate processes um, at the moment. Yes, thanks, Chris. I thought the best thing we could do today was just look at the current status of those eight uh, projects that are on the uh, Local Government Victoria's Engage website where they're doing all the consultations for the new act. Indeed. So let's take them one at a time. What's happening with community engagement? Well, apparently we're currently consulting on community engagement, so that's ongoing. Anyone that's got an interest in the topic, get on the website and make a comment. These are mostly things that are coming in the tranche of provisions that are uh, coming into effect on the 1st of September, correct? Absolutely. Look, the department's been pretty good on that. They're, it's a very orderly process and things are being done in, in, in order of the way that they'll be implemented. Makes sense. So public transparency is another one? So the draft's available, um, Chris, on public transparency. Um, and it's worthy of due consideration by anyone that's involved in uh, the adoption of that document at their own council. I was just going to clarify, when you say a draft's available, you're talking about a, a draft model set of yes, principles? A, yes, yeah, yeah, a model, a model guideline. Um, mm. But it will need to be given consideration because I think for a couple of reasons. One of the big things for me on this is that whilst we value transparency, um, there are times we can't be. Um, either matters are confidential, um, there are privacy implications. Um, for all sorts of reasons, there's moderation around the information that, that can be required. So I think it's really important that uh, councils look at what they're able to manage and certainly create a document that's as aspirational but as realistic as possible because it will need to be read in conjunction with those other um, obligations. Delegated committees. Now, this is a big change. As we said last week, there's no Section 86 that talks about committees anymore. So uh, where are they at with that one? Okay. So again, there is a, a model or a draft document available on the website. Look, it's pretty simple, Chris. It's... Um, and again, there's no great surprises in it. One of the really good things about that document is there's a table in there that sets out the various um, obligations of delegated committees compared with community asset committees and uh, the reporting arrangements, who creates the delegations, who creates, uh, makes the appointments, for example. So that's a really useful uh, piece of information. Yes, indeed. And as distinct from delegated committees, the Audit and Risk Committee is being treated separately. Yes, indeed. It's certainly referenced in the delegated committee's documentation, Chris, but there is a draft um, or a model audit and risk advisory charter available, um, which is fairly comprehensive. Um, so um, I've seen some activity around the sector already. Most, most uh, councils are getting ready to, uh, to, to adopt a new charter and, uh, and look at those new arrangements. Just quickly on that, Chris, I think there's... Um, that's a useful model to talk about for a couple of reasons. I, I would have thought, and, and I think for most people, um, there should be no great surprises in audit and risk committee charters. Um, best practice in this field has been uh, seriously discussed for some years now. 
again, like the other documents, I think it's really important that every line be considered in terms of the applicability at your own council. Um, mm -hmm. The other opportunity in, in the review too is in some ways, like some of the other documents, it's written as being a bit instructional. Um, so it'll talk about um, the aspiration of such a charter, but when you're turning it into the document for internal purposes, rather than saying, you know, this section intends that, you could say the chief executive officer will, or the organisation will, like right. it's possible to make the, the policy a lot more specific. Yeah. Um, okay. Chris, the other part um, is that, I think with all of these, it's really important to be really clear about what the requirements are um, in the Act. Um, just for one example, I had a look. The model charter talks about the requirement um, that professional development be um, ongoing for um, audit committee members. Now, does that mean the council's paying for the professional development of audit committee members or are they expected mm. to do their own PD? Will there be a program developed? That's and there's no obligation in the Act, or the Act doesn't talk about that aspect of it. So being clear about what's required, what's discretionary, and how the organisation's going to implement it is really important. Okay, yeah, good point. Um, one that I'm keen to see how this plays out is the, the new governance rules, Steve. Where are they at? There is a draft available, um, and it's reasonably comprehensive, Chris. Um, the only part that's really significant... Oh, sorry, no. I'll go back. It's all significant. The part yeah. that takes up the most pages is yeah. that that model has dropped in a local law, presumably from a council or a number of councils. So one of the first pieces of work um, that each council will need to do is to take those parts of, of their existing governance or meetings local law and drop them into the governance rules and presumably D1989 them um, to make them right. sort of pertinent to the 2020 legislation. So to be clear, the meeting procedures will now be in the governance rules. You, you don't need a separate local law to govern meeting procedure? No, in my understanding, and again, Chris, we make this um, observation regularly, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, my understanding is that if for, for a council to actually um, have any uh, enforcement associated with the governance rules, they would need to make a governance local law. But in terms of the normal just run-of-the-mill um, conduct of meetings, yes. that part of the local law can basically be dropped in and reworded. Yes. Uh, so it also occurs to me many councils have the common seal process in their meeting procedure local law. They're often together. So how has that been treated? Same way, Chris, can go straight in. But right. again, um, and you'd probably want to get some legal advice or we can do some research around if there were penalties attaching, I don't believe that you could rely on your governance rules to achieve that. Okay. Not space. that misuse of the common seal happens all that often, Chris. No, no, <laughs> good point. Okay. So, so while we're in that governance phase, uh, conflict of interest and uh, councillor expenses, separate pieces of work around those two areas? And they're, yes, they're both requirements. Um, the council, well, the council must adopt a councillor expenses policy. There's a nicety in that one too, Chris, is this, you'll recall that currently councillor expenses policies also um, talk uh, or address facilities and resources that are made available to councillors. That's not mandated in the Act, but the model document basically says, um, and it's separate to the governance rules, I recall, um, basically says that um, councils may consider uh, 
um, inclusion. And I would have thought it's pretty good practice if you're going to be providing laptops and mobile phones and some um, office support to councillors that that be formalised in a policy. Um, in terms of conflict of interest, mm -hmm. um, I've had a bit of a light on the road to Damascus on this topic, Chris. Um, really? I have. Who, who knew? Um, the current Act, you're, oh, sorry, the 1989 Act, you'll recall, um, has two ways by which councillors can um, declare their conflict of interest. One being in the meeting just beforehand or by providing advice to the chief executive and mm -hmm. then um, the chief executive keeping a register which would absolve the councillor from declaring the detail of the conflict of interest in the public meeting. That probably worked reasonably well um, in an environment where declaring of a personal interest wasn't mandatory. That was at the discretion of the councillor. You'll recall we talked last week about the fact that those personal interests, generally speaking, would now be caught in what's in the 2020 Act described as a general interest. Would a reasonable person think there's a reasonable likelihood that, um, that the relationship may cause a, you know, an intersection between public and private duty, if you like? So one of the elements that wouldn't have been caught as a conflict, as direct or indirect conflict in the previous Act, which has in various forms of government got people into strife in the past, um, might relate to uh, relationships between uh, parties to a transaction, relationships with staff, etc. So um, because the reason for that particular clause about the, uh, the declaration to the Chief Executive was that um, sometimes a conflict of interest might be personally embarrassing, for example. Right. So it's probably worthwhile for councils to really give some thought to that as to um, whether they would want to replicate that current arrangement of declaration to the chief executive um, in their local, uh, sorry, in their governance rules um, as a means of declaring. And it's really a conflict, isn't it? It's that sort of where does the public interest lie in, in protecting the individual or in public disclosure and really thinking through where you should fall on that one. Okay, interesting one. <laughs> uh, I want to leave some time, uh, because we are running short now, uh, for, for training. So there's two elements to training in the new Act, the mandatory candidate training and the post-election induction training. Um, the engagement on the mandatory candidate training is now finished, I understand? That's concluded and anyone that's interested can jump onto that website and look at the feedback that's been provided. A bit of that feedback, I understand, is a suggestion that candidates should be <laughs> tested, not just prove they've done it, but prove they've passed it. How's that gone down? Oh, well, I haven't spoken to anyone, Chris. I only noticed it this morning, but... Um... I would have thought there's um, a number of councillors and officers in the uh, in the sector who would think it's a terrific idea. Now that said, the practicality of yeah. putting prospective uh, candidates through an exam and having a pass fail that will determine their capacity to be a councillor, um, I'm not sure it'll fly. Happening. I can't <laughs> no. see that happening. No. Love the idea. Yeah. But there is information available now about yeah. uh, what people think. Um, and what's the next step there? So obviously we need to see what the prescribed mandatory training is going to. Exactly. Um, so it'll be what the format of the mandatory training is. And one would expect that that will roll out at about the same time as we see the electoral regulations because they'll, okay. they'll, they'll be the guiding light. Exactly. So we might have to park uh, integrated strategic planning framework 
for next week because uh, that's got a couple of minutes discussion in it at least, I think. Well, but the co-design uh, survey is available for anyone interested, Chris. Okay. Yep. Let's, uh, let's come back to that next week. But in the meantime, for all of those pieces of information that you've been mentioning are available, where you can find them, Steve? Uh, find them on the uh, engage.vic.gov.au website. Um, there's a, a, um, a link on the local government Victoria website to that page. So um, that's probably I've found the easiest way to find it, yeah. Chris. So I know you talk to a lot of people around the sector, Steve. How are the governance professionals feeling generally about the task at hand? Does it feel like it's all doable or does it feel like we've really got this massive task on our hands that we're going to run out of time? The sense I'm getting, Chris, is yes, it's doable. There's um, still some doubt around the consultation obligations and clearly it's not going to be possible to do the full section 223 type consultation. And the reality is, of course, for most people or for most councils, there's not going to be massive change. And I would have thought the incoming councils would expect to review all of this documentation in the first 12 months anyway. So um, I think the timetabling around get, meeting the 1 September deadline is probably the biggest thing that's worrying people rather than the content itself. All right. Thanks, Steve. We'll have to leave it there. Great to chat as always. There'll be more next week on the governance update, I'm sure. So have a great week. Enjoy the long weekend. You too. Thanks, Chris. Stephen Cooper joining us for our regular governance update here on VLGA Connect.